Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello and welcome to the A24 Project here on the Nerd Party, the only podcast that takes you through the back catalogue of A24, two films every fortnight, along with interviews with the people behind the movies. On today's episode, we investigate the death of Dick Long and take in Low Tide. I'm your co-host Alice King, and with me as always is Lee Hutchison. How are you? Yeah, I'm ready to get weird. I'm sure we will, yes. But, you know, before we get to that, you know, it's been a while, but happy to say that we uh, actually finally have some proper A24 hour news to discuss. I know it's quite shocking, but, you know, finally, you know, the end, I, I was going to say the end of lockdown is in sight, but it's not really. But um, cinemas are taking tentative baby steps towards coming out of lockdown and putting some screenings on. And it seems like A24 are going to be first out of the gate, releasing Saint Maud in US cinemas on July the 17th. They've taken the spot that was originally going to be held by Inception's 10-year anniversary, which was going to play two weeks before Tenet, but Tenet has moved to the middle of August, and therefore Inception has moved to July 31st, and Mulan has also been delayed until August, which basically means, I think, if I'm right in saying, that St. Maud will probably be the first new release in US cinemas since around about the 13th of March. Weird, isn't it? Did you expect A24 to be the the saviours of the cinema? No, no, I didn't. I mean, I put out a tweet last week. I I included Mulan in it, but obviously things have changed a little bit. That sort of St. Maud in America, um, because it's obviously in October October here, and then sort of Proxima in the UK, are probably quite grateful that Tenant seems to be taking a lot of kind of the, you know, it's sort of taking a lot of the pressure that seems to be placed on that everyone is pinning on Christopher Nolan of like opening a film in cinemas like he's going to get people killed it's going to be this and it's going to be that and it's like I'm sitting there thinking like there are other films that kind of drop you know in respective countries a few weeks earlier where you could say Proxima, St. Maud do they really need to be in the cinemas you know I would say yes but you know it seems to be they seem to be kind of going underneath the radar so if you're kind of rose glass you'll be like Okay, sure, yeah. Just blame the white guy. I will I will make sure my film kind of hopefully gets dropped in cinemas without too much complaints from audiences. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, it is. I mean, uh, if you uh, listen to our filibuster podcast, uh, we have recently completed our Nolan retrospective and we talk at length there in every episode about whether or not Tenet is going to be released on time. Uh, it finally it did get moved, but we did discuss about how Nolan has been the the poster boy for getting people back into cinemas, even though he never actually said that. He always said that it would be ready for when cinemas reopen. But of course, people are, like you say, looking for the scapegoat and decided that, you know, if anything does go wrong, they're happy to uh, to blame him if it does. So yeah, it does seem a bit unfair. But, you know, it, it is nice that A24, have, they've always said that, you know, they're, they're wanting to uh, protect uh, and enjoy the, the big screen experience, which is kind of makes 
it weird that uh, the second piece of news is that First Cow is... It did actually technically get a cinema release for about five to seven days in America, in I think maybe New York and LA, but um, they finally decided that it's going to not, not return when cinemas reopen, and it will be going onto video on demand in August. And I believe you've already pre-ordered, is that correct? Yeah, I have pre-ordered this one. I suppose it's similar to the eighth grade situation we found ourselves in kind of a couple of years ago that I waited forever for eighth grade to get a UK release. I was always confident it would get one, but I think with the current climate in the UK at the moment, I'm not overly confident that it will get a kind of you know a release i mean it doesn't even have a distributor here yet in the uk so i have i have pre-ordered it on itunes and um, i'm really keen to see it i will go see it in the cinema when it comes out if it ever comes out here in the uk but i want to get behind this film and i'm, I'm really keen to check out i mean sort of on an emotional level i know it's a kelly reichardt film but um renee ebenajoie that's one of his last ever films yeah he's an actor that might be familiar to, to most as Odo from Star Trek Deep Space Nine he's a bit of a regular in her film so I want to see his his kind of final performance and yeah I just want to get behind the cow get behind the cow and start milking its profits eh? that's good exactly but, you know uh, I mean I would like to, to tend like you I like to tend to, to watch films in the big screen but this one in particular is putting me into a bit of a quandary you know i'm i don't know i don't want to sound like privileged or anything but uh, having you know worked in a cinema for a long time um if you work in a cinema it, you tend to be able to watch films for free and then having a cinema limited card i would pay about 18 pounds a month to watch unlimited movies so Therefore, sort of the change to not being able to see anything in the cinema and new releases going onto video on demand, I've been a lot more hesitant to. I've been that the person who goes fourteen pounds really for the King of Staten Island. I'm like, I don't think so. I'm gonna wait. You know, you can pick up the odd bargain. I think it was um, uh, the assistant I got for about six dollars on us itunes so i mean fifteen dollars which is around about sort of 12 pounds i'll take a punt on on first cow but i've been a lot more hesitant on, on buying these video on demands just because i think it is quite expensive to go to the movies at home these days but um i also know that basically we're slowly coming towards the end of the a24 project as it stands with the, the current releases and our final scheduled episode at the moment would be First Cow and St Maud. Now, we both got to see St Maud at the London Film Festival. I got to, and then it was also at the Glasgow Film Festival. So, really, in order to, to complete that, we need to see First Cow. So, I will rent it and we'll be able to do that. We'll do that episode. And then it leaves us in a situation where we'll be binge-watching a series of Rami and uh, Euphoria until the Green Knight uh, makes its uh, return, whenever that may be, whether it's Venice Film Festival, London Film Festival, 2021, 2022, who knows? <laughs> but we shall see. But, um, you know, like I say, you know, there's been talk of people coming out of lockdown and apparently uh, Macbeth, which is being uh, directed by Joel Cohn, is about to, to restart filming. Uh, there was an update from some of the people who were working on it and it's about two thirds done and apparently, you know, They've said everyone knows the story of Macbeth, uh, so this one's going to be a bit more of a ticking clock thriller into how it all sort of comes to a head. You know, this is going to be Macbeth starring uh, Denzel Washington, 
as Macbeth and Francis McDordan as Lady Macbeth. And also apparently there was rumours it may be sort of filmed in a kind of style of the German Expressionism. Uh, How do you feel about this potentially rather different take on the, the play and film that should not be named? I think you made an amazing pitch there of why this is going to be something to definitely check out. I mean, there's been so many adaptations of Macbeth onto cinema, screen, um, stage. I've seen so many different takes, and I really enjoyed the kind of the most recent one with Michael Fassbender. I thought that was a an, quite an incredible adaptation. So I'm really excited to see what they're going to do with such a, a unique cast and sort of this ticking time element. You know, it's, it feels like we're back to the early 2000s again with sort of every sort of show trying to ape the 24 format whether it was something like that or phone booth so yeah i'm excited to see what they're going to do with it i think it's definitely going to be something that's going to stand out in their filmography anyway absolutely and you know one of the underrated coen brothers movie actually is um the man who wasn't there with billy bob thornton and that was just gorgeously shot in black and white and if they are going for a german expressionism theme i wonder if it will be a sort of black and white one that could be a really interesting take but i guess you know we're we're gonna have to wait and see once it gets filmed, when we get a trailer, a poster, any still shots from the movie, and then an eventual release date. But this one's definitely looking at probably late 2021, maybe early 2022. We'll have to see. But um, A24, you know, they've finally started to, to get off the butts and, and start moving forward, uh, rather than being in the holding pattern. And we have happily to announce that there is a new A24 film been announced uh, continuing their partnership with Apple TV. Uh, there's going to be a film called Sharper which stars Julianne Moore as a con artist and it's based on a spec script by Brian Gatwood and Alessandro Tanaka who writers of the comedy film The Sitter uh, which is available on Netflix um, and this will follow a woman who cons her way through the world of the Manhattan wealthy elite and this is good news for a24 fans as I get a new film but you know we've already sort of seen Julianne Moore in the A24 canon with uh, Gloria Bell uh, does this news excite you for you know the newest release from A24 yeah it's so exciting to have something to kind of look forward to again in the kind of the future things have been it's been a long sort of three four months of like you know, it feels like all the films that we should be looking forward to kind of in the, the future have been, or haven't even happened yet. So it feels like the films that we should have seen and kind of been excited about um, and sort of moving on to the next ones haven't kind of happened yet. So we've been in this sort of state of purgatory of like we haven't got over sort of the excitement of a, a tenant and no time to die, these sorts of things and with new things to kind of look forward to on the horizon. So it feels like we're kind of starting to get a trickle through again of, of projects to look forward to in the future, which is exciting. It's just kind of... Yeah, have to hope this second wave when it does hit isn't going to impact things kind of further in terms of distribution and kind of production but you know so I'm, I'm trying not to get too hopeful and too excited but hopefully we've got something to, to look forward to and report on in the future. Absolutely and you know this is one which given the Apple TV deal I mean they could always just go straight to to streaming this, this one because there is another the first film that was between A24 and Apple TV, the Sofia Coppola, Bill Murray, Rashida Jones comedy, is pretty much, I think it's pretty much done in the can, probably just finishing editing. So, you know, if it does look like cinema releases are going to be few and far between, you know, they may opt to, to drop that one later in the year just to give us uh, something to tide us over because they do have a couple of films. I think it's Minari and Zola, I think, which played at Sundance. Um, they were they're pretty much good to go so uh, i think sort of late 
2020, early 2021, uh, A24 will be back in step and back on the big screen. So we look forward to that. But, you know, we've got... Uh, those are the films which are yet to come. We're looking at the films which have already been. And first up today is The Death of Dick Long, written by Billy Chu and directed by Daniel Scheinert, one half of the Daniels, who did Swiss Army Man. And he also stars in the titular role, as Beanie Feldstein would say in Ladybird. Dick Long died last night, and Zeke and Earl don't want anybody finding out how. That's too bad, though, because news travels fast in small-town Alabama. The film stars Michael Abbott Jr., Virginia Newcomb and Andre Highland, and Lee talked to all three leads late last year about the film. Let's hear from them now. It's been a while since I could call you. I'd read as well that people like Justin Timberlake and Channing Tatum had been uh, linked to the role. What's it like to know that your name is in the mix against these sorts of known names that, you know, you're, as they were saying, that they want to go for sort of unknowns to kind of the, the general public. What's it like kind of going up against people like that for, for a role? Does it kind of give you a bit of nerves or does it give you a bit of excitement thinking like, I'm clearly the right person for this role. Maybe going for like a Justin or Channing would be maybe more stunt casting. As as an actor, you know, I've been I've been doing this for a long time. I'm 19 years in in New York here, and, and every day for me is is uh, is a bit of competition, and and it's it's no longer a surprise to me to walk into an audition situation and and see see people in in the waiting room that that I clearly know from from film and television. Uh, there was certainly a part of my there was certainly a time in my career where those things would throw me a little bit. Um, but now it is, it is kind of invigorating to, uh, cause I kind of thrive off of the nerves. And I feel like if, if, if I go into an audition situation and I'm nervous, I think that only tells me that it's something that actually means a lot to me. Uh, it's, it's, I feel like if I'm, if I'm auditioning for something and I'm not nervous, then I probably shouldn't be there. Then it's probably a waste of my time because I'm obviously not as uh, invested as I should be. So, you know, hearing those names, are, that's exciting. And, and you know, there's probably a part of A24 that was like, oh, fuck, we, we probably should have hired one of those really famous guys. Uh, we would have had a, a, a much more of a mainstream financial success on our hands. But I think in, or, in, in terms of the story... Uh, I think the the choice that they made to hire uh, quote unquote unknowns was was uh, uh, the best case f- for for the film in the end, I believe. So you obviously touched on it. you came in quite late into to the process. How did you sort of begin to prepare for the role once you knew this was your film? Um, <clears throat> how did I prepare? Well, you know, there, uh, without giving much away uh or without trying to give much away um the 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 activities in which these characters engage themselves in uh i knew was a real thing i knew those things existed um and so it was important for me to do as much research as possible in order to uh gain a little more knowledge about uh why people get into these certain types of activities what draws them to them Uh, also there's a lot of uh legal ramifications which which i i thought were you know not necessarily a 
so much a part of our story, but I thought in order to embody a character uh, that it was important for me to know, you know, what's at risk for these people if they're to get caught in their activities. Um, so, you know, I felt like I, I did have a leg up. I'm, I'm from the South originally. Um, so in terms of character and personality and style and accent, I felt like I had a pretty good handle on those things just because of where I'm from. But it was the, it was the more, it was the darker side, uh, that I felt like I had to, to do my research in order to really kind of dive in and, um, uh, in order to bring some depth and know what this gentleman was putting at risk in order to satisfy his needs. One thing, <laughs> one thing you touched on there is you have you're from a southern background. What's it like when you get a role like this that isn't the you know we see it a lot in kind of you know traditional Hollywood movies. You know the southern character played in a very specific way, very still stuck in that Jukes of Hazard way. What's it like with this when you get something that you can really bite your teeth into that isn't playing to the stereotypes and cliches that we all kind of roll our eyes at? Well, it's uh, you know that's 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 when you know you have to take it. That's when you know that the role is something that uh, that you have to play because. I read scripts all the time, constantly, where where you know everyone sounds like Foghorn Leghorn, and everyone uh, the characters are, are basically cartoons or caricatures of themselves. And this is one of those scripts that I read, and from the from the very first read, uh, I felt for these people. And as as and I and I and I've heard this from a lot of the audience as well as well. Uh, you know, you, you, you start to question your own, uh, you, you almost, you, you don't know how you're able to feel bad for these guys given the situation, but somehow you end up feeling bad. Um, it's those types of crazy roadmaps that send you in all different directions. That's what really draws me to a character. And I knew that this this was a film that was going to take the audience on a ride, and whether it was a ride that they were invigorated by or a ride that totally disgusted them, um, I wasn't really I wasn't really looking at it like, oh, this is a film that everyone's going to like. I knew that it was a film that people were either going to take to or be totally aghast uh, after watching. And I think that's why we make movies. We make movies to make people feel things, uh, to 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 start conversations, and uh, and that was really what uh, what drew me. The film kind of bubbles and then builds the, this tension of the mystery behind the death of Dick Long and explodes in this incredible kitchen scene which you know we're, we're doing this interview at the start of November and I suspect is going to be a many of these top 10 scenes of the year list. I'd love to dive into that scene and, and find out what was the process like for shooting it, preparing for it and was this always the one from even the audition process and you get the role of thinking this is the the big scene, this is the moment that's going to be the you know 
the, right. the real kind of climax to in a way perhaps of the film you know it's um the, the script is unfolds in such a in such a beautiful way it's it's one thing that that is just immediately it's on those pages and so you read it and yeah it's the moment it's 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 a big reveal. It, um, it kind of makes or breaks a lot of people's experience with the film. And so we actually all kind of, um, non, non-verbally agreed to not touch it a lot. We didn't talk about it a lot. I mean, I know the guys talked about it a little more, you know, kind of what they felt like really went down. Um, but that was kind of part of what, you know, I was saying is kind of made me feel isolated is because I felt like, the Billy liked to call Lydia the straight man and, and, and we kind of experience it with her, this, 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 this big reveal and, and the, the brokenness of it and, and the, the heartbreak of it. And so it's so heavy and so dark that I actually, I just didn't work that scene very much. I didn't read it a lot. I didn't over prepare it. Um, so that in the moment, that we could really live it in its, in its rawness. You know, there's just some scenes you read and you're like, okay, actually staying away from that until the day is going to be really not only healthy for me, but, um, I think good to keep the, to keep the work on in its nervous, like nerve ending kind of space as opposed to over intellectualizing it, which I can do. I love breaking down scripts and (laughs) Billy was, entertained me in that way like Billy and I would talk a lot about like what does this mean and he's a super smart smart writer um but you know for this one I had to I had to keep it in my body and just feel it and I think that the the editing um my scene partner obviously like all the elements really supported that and it's it's really fun for it's one of those things that's fun for me to rewatch because I just feel it all again it's so visceral <laughs> and it's fun to experience an audience shock with that one I was curious about that I, I always think of it that um when you watch a film like this for example and you're you take part in it what's it like when you know that you've watched it for the first time and you've gone through that and then you're watching a crowd respond to it for the first time are you watching the crowd or are you watching the screen i am feeling and listening to the crowd and watching the screen um like uh for the first couple of screenings so let me see i i saw a rough screening in la and just anytime I see something for the first time, especially in kind of a rough stage, you just you just take it all in. There's little that you can respond to. I remember, you know, talking to Dan about, you know, components of it that I felt that I hadn't felt before. And, you know, you, you just you just kind of have to taste it first. But then when I when I saw it in at, at Sundance, so the combination of being at Sundance for the first time and um being in that environment and it a lot rides on that first screening I remember that moment and feeling the audience and, and their response to it and I was like not only was I feeling that moment again but I could I was like looking down at my hands and they were shaking I was like oh my god this is just so much and too much at one moment <laughs> I mean obviously like I'm I'm a heavy feeler uh, but yeah that was um yeah, it's a, it's an ex, it's an exciting one to, to watch because there's so many feelings in a short amount of time, and you get to ride that wave with an audience. 
do you feel almost in your role you are the audience that you're processing this information and you're when your character is like are you fucking kidding me do you almost <laughs> think like i'm kind of the conduit for the audience here they're probably asking that is like is this it is this the the surprise yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, Billy and I said that to me. You know that I, um, she, he felt like Lydia was the everyman, and I was like, oh, I like that. You know, to consider that the the wife, the the woman, the the bearer of um, I think a lot of the the emotional brunt of this is the one who also carries us through it, and we feel safe with and feel trusting of, and. Um, I liked, I liked that, that flip on it, you know, and, um, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, it, yeah, it's only confirmed when I watch it with people again, because afterwards, everyone's always like that scene. <laughs> Never made it as a wise man. What was your kind of creative process with kind of Michael Abbott Jr. to sort of create this? Like you watch that, you you guys on the screen, it, it feels like the same with with all the relationships in this film. It feels lived in. It doesn't feel like you're just two actors that just got lumped together on on day one. It feels like you've got this kind of lived in relationship and a past and a life together. What was that sort of like? Did you get much of a chance to work on these characters together? Uh, well, a thank you. I'm glad you felt that way. Um, two, well, Mike and I, uh, uh, you know, Daniel told me, or, you know, told each other, I'm in LA, Mike's in New York, so we didn't get a chance to like meet before we went to Alabama to shoot. But we uh, talked on the phone, and just in general, Mike's like a cool dude and a nice guy, so it wasn't hard getting along with him. And uh, so we talked a few times, and then. When we got out to Alabama, uh, we lived together, just him and I, in this like, it's a whole other story, but it's like this haunted old, it's like this old historic house that used to be a brothel in Bessemer, Alabama, and I, whether you believe in ghosts or not, I don't, that house was like haunted, <laughs> but, but that's a whole other story. Um, but anyway, we lived together and we're just hanging out a lot. Him and I just got along really well. Um, I think that's for a couple of reasons, like, A, Mike's just a good dude, um, and two, I think uh, Daniel and, and the producer, everybody involved with uh, the death of Dick Long, just did a really good job of curating the cast and crew and finding people that, like, flowed well together. And then, you know, Mike and I had time to talk on the phone and also to hang out probably for a week and some change, I think, before we started shooting. Um, I, I, yeah, I think part of it was Mike and I never even got to audition together. We, we had, like, no whatever test of acting together until we got there. But I think Daniel just did a good job of also not just matching people who could play their roles, but who could also, I don't know, vibe together. You know what I mean? Or just get along just as people, not even as a project. Just like, I think he like, you know, it's like he put together a really good dinner party where he's like, I think all these people will probably get along. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that's how it felt. Like, because I'm you know, not just like, whatever, like, trying to hype it like everybody pretty much became who didn't know each other became buddies or got along real well like uh like virginia who you spoke with like you know she came out to la and stayed in like our uh, me and my girlfriend's little guest building and whatever it's just like you know like i don't know we're all like buddies now and like to hang out so it's, it's nice and she you know i don't know is a good, 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 
good group of people. <laughs> it's, it's such a great uh, comedic script, and obviously you've got a, a, a comedic background as well. And it's like lines we yeah. talk about, like that Paparoch one. You're like, oh shit, man, I would have said that kind of line. Did you sort of get much yeah. influence over the script or little bits with the, the character once you sort of had been cast? Was there opportunities for that, or was the the kind of script as golden as it was already? to uh, chat to all them because I know you've been a, a big fan of this one and we're just just kind of like on tenterhooks waiting for other people to see the film so I mean I guess it must have been quite exciting to be able to, to chat to these guys about yet another unique entry in the A24 canon. <laughs> yeah I think they're, they're a really great kind of cast that I think you can tell in the obviously I think we had like a two and a half hour long episode just before Christmas with, with all three of them where we, we got to chat with them and I think you can tell that they're so passionate about this this film and it's one I kind of share as well that I remember the first person interviewed was, was Virginia then Andre came involved and then Michael so it was really kind of great to hear all three of their different perspectives and you know approaches to this film but you know, this was one I I caught at the tail end of last year. I can't remember. I think I had a week off work or something. And this was obviously an A24 film that I had not seen. There was no word of any sort of UK release or distribution. And I thought, you know what? It's like five bucks to rent on, on iTunes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finally check it out because I didn't want it to be spoiled or anything like that. And looking forward to uh, a new Daniel Scheinert movie was always something to look forward to as well. So I kind of checked it out. And then, well, obviously, probably not reveal the twist as such, but you watch that and you think, huh, that was really good. I want to be able to talk about it with someone now because I know I had a small release here at sort of Sundance London. Um, but it was just one of those ones you, you just want to talk about it with people because I think it's such a, a well-made film that has such a clever 
twist at the heart of the film and I think it's got such kind of interesting characters and I think that it shows the South in a way that we don't often get to see in in a lot of films it kind of avoids a lot of the cliches and stereotypes and I think we've got a a really kind of fun film here Yeah because yeah I was really excited to be able to to finally talk about this one because I saw it at the Glasgow Film Festival I'd managed to stay spoiler free but I think it's safe to say that the film I saw was probably not the film that I was expecting I hadn't seen any trailers for just the the brief synopsis that had been in the the program and I mean it's fair to say like the poster for the film doesn't give anything away either I mean if anything the the death of Dick Long looks like he died from uh, external bleeding from blowing his nuts off with a a firework or something like that but suppose it's it's not that it's something else but you know we'll we'll skirt around that because i think part of the the enjoyment enjoy the film is not knowing where this film is going you know it's going to go somewhere you don't expect and we're not going to spoil it here for you so i mean lee what were your initial thoughts after your first screening staying spoiler free of course your spoiler free thoughts yeah, I, I thought it was it was it's highly enjoyable because I like the beginning of like so De- Dick Long is gone within the sort of first you know five ten minutes of the film. There, there's no spoiler there at all. I mean, it's in the title for crying out loud, and I think there's that thing that grips you kind of through the film of like what kind of went on that night that could have kind of killed him, and like things just sort of continue to kind of unravel. And these people aren't idiots as such, but it's just. I think it's very kind of probably realistic in a sense of well of like how difficult is it to kind of cover up a crime when you're sort of family men living in a small town where you know you get home and you see some you say to Pulp Fiction for example someone's blowing their head off in the back of a car we can call in the people to clean and scrub the car no one will ever know how do you do that when you've got a family and you've got to take the kid for, you know, in the morning or when you've got like a little kid and everyone's probably got a kid kind of like um, Cynthia where she's always kind of quick to say something no matter who the police are around, trying to be good and helpful. And I like that about it. It is like a kind of crazy situation, but at the heart of it, it's like, I get it. Like, I can understand why they've got to kind of this situation where they're struggling to kind of keep things kind of under wrap. And I thought that was... A really gripping thing at the heart of it but ultimately it's this family kind of drama as well sort of between sort of um Lydia and, and Zeke as well that these sort of you know southern family just trying to get by and you know there's just this problem at the heart of it where they you know it's sort of falling apart because they just can't keep the the secret together too long and I thought it was it was really good I was I was really gripped by it. You know, I mean, I saw it at the Glasgow Film Festival, uh, the, one of the public screenings, and it was, yeah, the the crowd really sort of engaged with this one because, like you say, the the death of Dick Long happens within the sort of first sort of five minutes of it. You get a band called uh, I think it's Pink Freud, which is a, a great name for a band, are sort of rehearsing one night and then they go out for a few beers and then the next thing you know is. The two of them are, are dropping sort of dick off at the hospital and then running away. And then it's you then what I really liked about it is the fact that the audience have no idea what's happened. And it's this slow drip feed of, of information as you start to, to piece together what happened. You don't know if it was intentional. You don't know if it was an accident. 
but you know these two guys uh you know, are just doing their best to you know of a, making the best of a bad situation in that you know the, i mean they did drop him off at hospital they were trying to to save his life but uh unfortunately he does pass and then you know the the doctors and police themselves start to slowly put things together and yeah it's just the way that you know it's it's what's interesting is that these guys are presented as you know they're not bad guys they're just inept guys but maybe not even inept i mean who knows how any of us would do in a situation like that where you're just trying to protect yourself and your family and also maybe even the victim's family from finding out the truth and you know it's just the way that everything they do comes from a good place but it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and in many ways it kind of sort of reminded me of I mean we mentioned about already on the set but actually a Coen Brothers film something sort of like blood simple sort of mixed with the the sort of comedy of like the the Big Lebowski or something where you know you've got all these weird sort of random characters I mean like some of the police officers are just brilliant in this as well and the way they sort of interact with the, the public and stuff like that it's just fantastic and like you say there's this family drama in the center of the wife who is being inadvertently drawn into this entire situation because she's telling the truth because she knows no different but that is then digging a deeper hole for her husband and stuff like that and then yeah, I mean, the the performances are, are great as well, and, and the daughter as well is just fantastic. And I mean, the scene in the, the back of the car where you know, he picks her up and she's got the bottle of dress, and yeah, it's just, you're sort of almost sort of watching it through your fingers, and what else could possibly go wrong for these people? I mean, it's it really is quite something. Yeah, I, I was thinking almost when I was watching it, my kind of mind went towards sort of Fargo as well. And it's not just sort of like this crime at the, the kind of middle of it, but I felt like it was such a kind of rich world as well that when you sort of go to say um, Earl's like apartment and stuff like that, you kind of see like this is a person that has lived a life you know, has all this crap that's there. It's not just sort of like they've planted a kind of couple cameras and, and filmed there. You know, I'm almost thinking of something like Gloria Bell where everything is quite sterile in terms of the environments. With here, like the band, how they perform, you feel like these people, like you, you're spending 90 minutes in their company, but you can imagine sort of like there's a, a long lived life with all these kind of characters, how they've interacted. Same with the kind of the marriage as well. It feels like we've kind of got into this little crazy slice of their life, but it feels kind of so rich and it has that sort of Southern kind of comedy, but it just avoids all the kind of cliches and, and tropes about kind of Southerners. And I think that makes for, for an interesting film to watch these rich characters and just even how they sort of talk and like they tie themselves into sort of popular culture where like, the music that they're playing you know the how you remind me by nickelback and like creed that sort of like christian pop rock kind of style thing where it's like that's really naff but that's the type of music like people will listen to will jam away perhaps on their guitar to these people aren't trying to be cool or hip like we see with a lot of other a24 characters they're people that are being genuinely very real but have something kind of very disturbing going on in the hearts of their lives yeah, um, just it's just reminded me sort of saying when he sort of the, all the crap in his trailer. It's when he's trying to escape and, and leave town, and he's like uh, one of his neighbors is like, um, "Oh, where are you going?" And he's like, "Oh, I've got to go up and see 
you know, like my mum for a couple of days and then she just looks over his truck and he's got a trailer with literally every single thing from the trailer piled up high, chairs, luggage and everything. And he's just like trying to say that he's only going to be away for a couple of days. And it's that sort of absurdist comedy, which is just really, really funny. And it's interesting because it is a very sort of, like you say, Southern American film, but it was really interesting to see how the sort of the Scottish audience that I saw it with took to I mean, I think there was I think we talked about it on I think it was when I was interviewing Scott Graham for a run. I think he talked about something how basically people in America had could relate to like a film set up in the northeast of Scotland and it's like the more specific you go with something, the more general and accessible it can become. So and I think it's like something that you know, with these characters and stuff like that, there's people in maybe sort of rural areas of Scotland or something can see themselves in and their sort of family dynamics or maybe their friends and stuff. The the way that, you know, you go out for a few beers, uh, just like a couple of beers after work or something, and then end up in a load of crazy escapades and it just uh, descends into chaos and then you're dealing with the repercussions uh, the day after. Probably not this specific set of repercussions, but um, repercussions nonetheless. And I mean, I have to ask. Did you had you read much about the the film or whatever? You said you didn't want to go and spoil, but I mean, when the when the cause of death is is revealed, I mean, you can't have been expecting what it was, no. <laughs> no, no, I certainly didn't. And I mean, without sort of, I'm not going to spoil it, but like the build up to that scene where you sort of got um, Lydia and Zeke sort of arguing, where like Zeke's becoming more desperate of like. Oh, it, it was like a, a chainsaw accident or like, um, yeah, like accidentally shot him. And it was just like the way that you're seeing like all these things, like you'd be shocked if someone went to you like, oh, yeah, I like chainsawed my friend by mistake and he died. But it's just like the lack of conviction and sort of like, right, this is what I'm going to commit to. This is the, you know, the bit is that it was like a chainsaw accident or something else that can be kind of like explained away. I just, I, I think like Michael Albert Jr. is like acting in that and especially Virginia Newcomb's response of like how they play off each other. Because I thought that, that scene is just so good and the payoff. I remember sort of, I went to a screening in Glasgow as well where I'd already seen the film, but I was like, I really want to see this with with an audience. Like it's, I don't know when the opportunity is going to come again. So I remember it was one of the few films that had sort of sold out at Glasgow Film Festival and got like an extra kind of screening had gone on. I think there was three altogether. So it was on like a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. So it was like a quieter screening um, because they had the two sell at ones. And it was just like watching that with a crowd where like, I know what's going to happen. And it's just that moment of like hearing audiences go, what? What the hell? You know, I love when you're sort of sometimes just ahead of that kind of the audience members. And I should add one thing that I find so funny that my crowd all seem to laugh at was in the beginning when you're sort of seeing this southern town is the um, lawnmower on a stick. That seemed to get the biggest belly laugh of the entire film as well so no i i certainly didn't see it coming but i think that's definitely one of my favorite a24 scenes is the sort of like trying to commit to what killed dick long what about for yourself Dallas? yeah no i remember sort of when it that moment hit i was like what and then sort of looking around the the screen at other people who were also sort of going what no no it's not no what? And then it's like, and then I heard rumours of apparently that particular 
type of accident slash injury also featured in another film at the Glasgow Film Festival. So I don't know what was in the uh, the water uh, for the programming department of the festival that year, but yeah, that was an old one. But yeah, it was just like, I was not expecting that. And yeah, it's the way that they commit to it after that. And like you say, that particular scene... Uh, and also like the scene where the police officer comes over to the house and is trying to get a bit more detail from them and you know there's all these different stories and lies going on and it's like uh Zeke's like got so many different plates he's trying to spin he's trying to you know not argue with his wife in front of the officer he's trying to tell one story to her and then it's like um the the kid is you know involved as well and it's just like you really sort of feel for him in that way you know it was I mean the accident is partly of his making and yet he's just trying to do his best and it just fails so spectacularly that yeah it's 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 one of the most sort of sympathetic performances I've seen in, in an A24 film for a, a long time and yeah you know he's just uh, fantastic for it and I mean it's it's the kind of thing where you're like no it can't be but then it kind of like you go okay and then you think well this is from the uh, the couple of uh, directors that made the uh, Daniel Radcliffe farting corpse film so in some ways you know you really shouldn't have been surprised that uh, you're utterly surprised at what they went for <laughs> yeah and I think this is the type of film that like as a podcast like we do cover all like and, and I, we can see the stats of like what our most popular episodes are so if we do like a midsummer or something like that like it's huge and stuff we get lots of people in but like what i found quite interesting was for like the death of dick long when we dropped the episode in december with just the interviews like i thought like it's a film that maybe not enough people have maybe seen it'll kind of do relatively well um but like it seemed to really be quite popular i think there's like a huge kind of amount of people that have seen this film and I think ultimately much like sort of the actors in the the interview and us as audience members none of us want to spoil the twist it's not like the six uh the sixth sense where everyone's going like oh my god and what about that twist ending to people that haven't seen it like everyone wants to kind of is feels like if you watch it you're in on this secret and you want to kind of talk about it with people and hear about it and i think there's definitely like a big crowd there for sort of like the death of dick long and i'm only basing this strictly on our, our episode kind of stats for something like that but i i know what it's like when you guys also in Glasgow and stuff. I'd had to keep it quiet for like th- two months about <laughs> what the twist was like. Just let me know as soon as you've seen the film what your reaction is. And then it feels like everyone else is then in on the, the secret. And I think that's the joy of this. I hope people will listen to this episode and then go go check out the, the death of Dick Long and, and dive into sort of our, our full interviews. Yeah, no, I think you sort of texted me and said, you know, what did you make of it? And then I think I sent you back just like two emojis and a question mark, and you knew exactly what it meant. Uh, but I mean, this is a film which, at the moment, it does not have a UK distribution. Um, it was uh, supplied by A24, specifically for the, the film festival, and hasn't been picked up yet. So at the moment, uh, basically, a US iTunes is, is the only way to, to see it here. Uh, 
and so you can do that and i think it is actually still five dollars i think it's one of those films which has stayed around the sort of four or five dollar mark for a rental and it definitely is worth it and it's like you say it's it's not like it's not a a twist like the the sixth sense where you can watch it again and go oh well of course well everything sort of makes sense now this is a film which needs to be experienced not knowing what's going to happen first time round, and that's why we're not going to spoil what happens and i think we're going to leave it there let you enjoy the death of dick long and then you can dm slide into our dms and let us know because obviously we don't want you getting the uh, that information out into the public domain and spoiling it for others so we hope you do enjoy the dick of death long and the dick of death long no the death of dick long that's the sequel <laughs> and uh, then like you say like we said uh, sort of check out the full interviews which are best watched and sort of listen to afterwards as well Next up is Low Tide, and that is written and directed by Kevin McMullen, and it is starring Jaden Martell, Kean Johnson, Alex Nestever, and Daniel Zoghat. And Alan, Red, and Smitty spend high summer in the Jersey Shore, roving the boardwalk and getting into trouble. The discovery of some good old-fashioned treasure sets the friends on an escalating course of suspicion and violence. Uh, Lee, when was the first time that you discovered low tide yeah this was another one sort of towards the tail end of last year where i was sort of like picking off like a24 films i hadn't seen yet and i was sort of wanted to kind of have a nice full picture of them sort of to do my best 2019 kind of ranking so i picked this one up as quite a cheap rental on on sort of itunes and i kind of wasn't too sure what to expect going in but what really impressed me kind of immediately was the the quality of the casting in this like it feels like it's a who's who of sort of young American kind of cinema and I think this is a, a really interesting film as someone that sort of never watched the Goonies as a kid or um, <laughs> I felt like I got my sort of like little Goonies adventure where I could watch something like this for the first time and I think this was such an interesting sort of dark take on that kind of Goonies style adventure where I thought I was going in for like one very specific type of film in terms of like here's some kids they've got some you know treasure and off they go and have some kind of romps but what I liked was that it was sort of true to sort of the Jersey Shore kind of connotations of sort of the 1980s that bit darker that bit more seedier and I think they had a really sort of clever twist on sort of kind of what could be a bit of a a tired um, sort of take on um, a story like this. Yeah, no, this is a film which I knew nothing about before sort of downloading it from iTunes and, and pressing play. And yeah, I was actually really pleasantly surprised by this one. I mean, I totally get what you're saying uh, with the Goonies sort of references. Uh, for me, this the film that sort of probably felt most akin to was probably sort of Stand By Me in the, the fact that they've got this, they go on a bit of a, a journey adventure. You know, so it kind of, sort of almost sort of starts off with a, as a sort of Jersey Shore version of the bling ring where these uh, friends are sort of raiding the, the summer houses of the, the rich sort of uh, urban sort of New Yorkers and uh, people from like Connecticut and Maine who come down for the summer and spend summer in the houses and whenever they're out, they, they go and uh, rob them and stuff like that. But then it sort of evolves into something where, you know, they basically rob this old sort of abandoned house find this treasure and then you've got the sort of you know what's going to happen between the, the dynamic the group is is tested you know um you've got red uh the sort of older one of the group who's got a poncho of violence he sort of really reminded me of sort of Kiefer Sutherland in Stand By Me that kind of thing and I really sort of 
liked it and it was a really pleasant surprise. It's sort of, I'm not sure what it is about A24 in sort of like 2018, 2019, but they really had a sort of thing for sort of, you know, forgotten summer sort of movies. You had sort of Hot Summer Nights as well, the Timothy Chalamet one, and then uh, sort of Never Going Back as well kind of had that sort of vibe. Um, it's sort of one of those great sort of, like you say, sort of forgotten genres and which could become tired, but I think it's, like you say, it's the quality of the... The acting in the in the group dynamic, I think, really sort of makes it work. The sort of four lead actors here are great, and you sort of good good, good support from uh, sort of like Shay Wiggum is like the uh, the local town sheriff who sort of has known and grown up with these boys, and you know wants to to do right by them, but also you know has to to be there to to put them in line uh, every now and again. Yeah, what I found interesting about this was like it had such a small budget. You know, you're you're looking at like sort of I think less than a million that was kind of spent on this film, and it's it never once sort of shows that this is a movie that is made on sort of a a shoestring budget. When you think of some of the other things that we've kind of covered, is that I think the fact that they've got such a fantastic cast and I just think the story itself is really gripping that it's it's kind of in around that sort of you know 80s 90s they don't sort of nail down like a time frame and I like how it sort of it strips away of things that would kind of if you did this kind of film these days kind of mobile phones would kind of ruin it and it just I don't know if I could buy into the idea of young kids and sort of the 2000 the 2020 like kicking around with sort of like gold coins and something whereas there's something about that kind of 1980s which feels kind of true to life and I just think it's interesting sort of watching sort of that kind of culture of these are people that they live in sort of the Jersey Shore and whenever we think of Jersey Shore we kind of <laughs> I, I know myself I think like that reality TV show that I've never seen in my life you know those kind of things maybe you know touches upon sort of things like The Sopranos whereas it's nice to have a sort of show about a movie about people that kind of live in these sorts of tourist towns and sort of how they kind of get by when sort of their town gets flooded for for a summer and then everyone kind of moves on. I think it was really interesting how they brought the Jersey kind of shore area to, to life in a way that I don't think has been, been done at all in films that I've seen anyway. Yeah, no, I'm just imagining that uh, A24, they could probably commission a movie uh, similar to, to this sort of set on the shore of, of Bournemouth Beach, you know, post-lockdown uh, where everything goes crazy for a couple of days and uh, the people of Bournemouth decide to take their revenge on the all the people sort of coming in, blocking up their beach and uh, leaving their rubbish and uh, defecating in burger boxes and stuff like that. A24, if you fancy a film like that, come to us, we'll, we'll write a script and get it, <laughs> get it ready. But I mean, for me, if you sort of think of Jersey on screen, you know, it's sort of my head automatically sort of goes to uh, sort of Kevin Smith with the sort of the VSQ universe and Jersey Girl and uh, Geely and stuff like that but um, you know but that's really sort of a very specific area of Jersey and like you have never seen Jersey Shore I believe there's a Snooky involved I think I think I know I think there's a Snooky something like that but yeah it's never been sort of something that I've been interested in I sort of can't stand all that sort of reality TV side you know I sort of after about sort of season four or five of Big Brother, I mean that was about it for me. Uh, the UK Big Brother, not the American one. And yeah, it was just interesting to see. Yeah, you've got this Jersey Shore side of it with the, the rich palatial palaces and stuff like that, and the big houses and stuff. And it was interesting to see the the other side of it. And yeah, it's just a really interesting sort of slice of life. And yeah, like you say, there's a, a almost like a timelessness to this one, and that it feels like it could be sort of 80s 90s it could even almost sort of be 
early sort of like 60s and stuff like that i mean there's a lot of time sort of spent on the boardwalk which these sort of places themselves are are pretty timeless you know they don't really advance sort of technology wise they sort of keep the classic dodgems whirlitzers big wheels and the sort of you know the, the tin can things where you have to knock them down with a coconut or something and then get one of the big stuffed toys and stuff like that so yeah no it's a really sort of interesting sort of and i think the like you say you've got this at the heart of it this story of a group of friends and also the sort of the brother relationship where you know due to an injury on a job the the younger brother is is forced to get involved and then it's about the older brother trying to keep him safe and he doesn't want to corrupt him you know it's like he sort of almost accepted that you know he's never really gonna get out of it you know it's that thing of never getting out that town he's just gonna get a dead-end job stuff like that and then you know his his brother could do better and he wants to to keep that sort of dream alive for him and stuff like that which is kind of similar to what you had with um kind of sort of like timothy chalamet's character in hot summer nights where he sort of comes to this town and he's sort of doing okay but then he sort of dreams of something bigger and then you know decides to become a drug dealer for the summer and stuff like that but you know that that is never going to end well and it's all about that sort of balancing sort of your dreams versus uh the avoiding the temptation of becoming a criminal i guess yeah and i like how as well that they've got like their code as well like there's no stealing from kind of locals and kind of obviously with the the writer director being sort of a a new jersey kind of native as well i like how he's they're sort of you you can see that they've probably drawn from that kind of experiences how much of that is his real life experience i i don't know like he maybe funded the making of this movie with gold coins but i like those kind of touches as well that it it does feel sort of brought to brought to life and it's not just sort of like right let's tell sort of a story about sort of teenagers and just kind of drop them in anywhere and everywhere like i i think the fact that they've kind of got this location i think it makes it all the more kind of interesting and kind of richer about sort of what is that kind of society like beneath the the surface of sort of the the tourism and the the sheen of sort of what you can imagine even at the time of sort of people from new york and kind of probably manhattan sort of heading out to to new jersey absolutely and i think you know what you're you're saying there about his sort of bringing his own sort of uh history to the the project stuff it's probably as good a time as any to to bring in uh the the right director kevin mcmullen uh because lee you you spoke to him uh this year as well and so let's go to hear him and hear about his thoughts on the project you touched on the finance in there i had to double check this when i was doing a bit of research the other day that you made this film amazingly for one million dollars and i was like I-, I couldn't believe that i thought maybe it's a typo maybe there's a zero missing from that um oh, no. what are the, what were the benefits and the the limitations of this type of budget because i say i was i was shocked when i thought of the cast, the look of this film, yeah. it I didn't see a million dollar film on there. I genuinely was was shocked there. And I even like going into this interview, I was like, yeah, I think it's definitely a million the way you're talking there. What were kind of the benefits of the, of that? Well, actually, the budget was was less. It was eight hundred thirty thousand. So uh, every every penny kind of had a count, and I, I think that um, um, growing up, you know, where we shot it, I knew what time of day. Uh, was best to film in certain spots, you know, and I, I think you you achieve a higher production value um, for, for far less if you have that kind of intimate knowledge of of where you're shooting. Um, so r- rather than get like a a, a cherry picker and uh, a, a bunch of bunch of lights and then have to get more grips and more food to feed those grips, 
if we just showed up at the harbor from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m., we would get that nice backlight, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, essentially the production value would skyrocket uh, just because we, we timed it correctly. So there was a lot of that reverse engineering, the, the look I wanted to, and, and um, you know, with the AD and the cinematographer and just making sure we, we kind of um, got to the, that's the locations or were able to film a certain direction when we wanted to. Um, and then, and then I, I think we were just so, so lucky to get, to get the cast that we did. Um, especially when we did, it, I think it was before a lot of the cast members are, are, um, are better known now, just a couple of years later after we cast it. But it was very obvious that, that all these young actors were, were going on to, to have, um, pretty big, pretty big careers. And, and I was lucky to catch them in this transition where, where they were still open to doing, um, very low budget films for, for, you know, essentially scale, whatever the, whatever the minimum union required pay was. What was the casting process like for this film? As you say, it, you seem to really hit the jackpot with these casts, which sometimes just can, you know, when I sort of looked at their IMDb's after watching the film, I was like, I'm sure I recognised that from there and there and there. It's, it's, you must have a great eye for casting to get them at such a, a time of their career. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, like, I don't know if it's a good eye or, or it's just, it's obvious, I think, to, to anyone who watches um, these kids, which is which is why they're all kind of being cast in other TV shows and movies right now, but um, the, the, the first cast member to get on board was Jaden Martell. Um, I got a call from his agency that he wanted to play Peter, which was the in my mind the hardest role to cast is the younger brother and he's got the largest arc and he needed an actor who's very intelligent um i had seen him in a movie called saint vincent with with uh, uh, bill murray that was his very first movie um and then he went on to, to star opposite michael shannon in a, a great jeff nichols film called midnight special um and so i skyped Jaden, and uh he is uh he's preternaturally talented he's, He's wise beyond his years, um, and uh, I knew he, he would bring a lot of emotion to that to that role. And um, moving forward, we, we had a, a, a large runway. I think this was in spring 2017, and um, a lot of casting decisions um, kind of uh, happened um, the weeks leading up to prep. Um, but I was lucky that we had a few months, and I knew that that Jaden was going to play Peter. So. So from then on, when I would work with our, our casting director, Susan Shotmaker and Lois Drapkin out of New York City, um, I was in this great position where, where any actor who's coming in for a read in person or sending me a tape, um, I could kind of cast them in my head um, in context of, of Jaden. And, um, you know, there's there like so many great young actors out there and it really was, um, are, they, are they right for this or, or could they play uh, opposite? Jaden, or, or, or how would they complement, um, what would that contrast look like? And so, um, I think next up was Kean Johnson, who played Alan, um, and I loved his read. He, he, uh, he sent it a self-tape, and, um, and he was super confident, and he was playing the, the, the role um, with this like, sense of impulsivity, and I, I, I loved it. I thought, I thought um, that version of Alan with Jaden's version of Peter would, would make this really interesting dynamic that was present in the script um, unfold really nicely on camera, which was kind of a role reversal uh, uh, in, 
in terms of uh, older and younger brother dynamics. Um, and then next I saw um, Alex Newsdetter, who played Red. And I was getting a lot of submissions in for Red. Um, and I picked um, kind of this uh, monologue um, section of the script for actors to audition with. And most every actor that walked in kind of, um, uh, it was an intimidating speech. And a lot of them kind of kind of went forward in that direction. And Alex did something very interesting, which was um, he, 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 he played an opposite. A very silent, uh, very quiet, and somehow that was way more intimidating. And I, I, I thought that not only is this guy like a really smart actor and um, an extremely nice person, uh, uh, he could play this role. I think um, with a uh, in, in a really dark way. That, that I don't know. I, I just thought it was super interesting. Um, and then we were like. Uh, we were about like five minutes from, from calling the casting. Uh, I remember I got a call from the casting directors that, that I had to see this kid named Daniel Salgadri. Um, and they sent me first a, a tape that he had submitted for a TV show. It was a different project, but um, it was like a minute and a half long video. And I remember I, I laughed that loud uh, watching it, and then I teared up um, because he was giving this monologue that was the first funny and then extremely sad. And um, I thought, wow, this this kid can he can kind of do anything. Um, and I met with him, um, and he's such a smart uh, young man. And I, I I felt we, we were both aligned on this idea that the character of Smitty that Daniel plays um, should really be Machiavellian. And you needed this actor who could who could really um, give this really powerful turn. Like at, at first, you would believe that he's kind of the runt of the group, you know, uh, a bit of the comic relief, but. You need someone who could also pull off this more sinister um, side. Um, and then there's uh, Christine Froseth. She came in for Reed. I believe I believe this might have been chronologically her first movie. I, I know she was in a music video and she did some modeling beforehand. Um, and I, and uh, there there have been other movies and TV shows that she's in that have come out sooner. But that might have we might have been her first movie, which was which was pretty cool. But again. It's so obvious when she walked in the room. Um, she had this kind of archetypal innocence uh, that reminded me a lot of Sybil Shepherd from The Last Picture Show, which is kind of how I had always envisioned Mary, um, uh, the character that she plays. Um, and then last of the, of the lead cast was um, Shea Wiggum, who he found this project really, really well. When I was going and meeting with a couple of different agencies, um, someone, someone knew Shea. And they asked if, um, you know, if I'd be interested in, 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 in And I've been a massive fan since a David Gordon Green film called All the Real Girls, um, where Shay's character is wearing braces and a fanny pack. And I used to quote him in college. I love that movie so much. So um, I had the opportunity to sit with him for breakfast. And we really bonded this idea that his character, Sergeant Kent, um, is, is the father figure and kind of the only adult or one of the only adults in the entire movie, um, it kind of speaks with a little, a little more reason and caution and perspective. And um, and Shea came on, on set, and he's just like the nicest guy, excellent actor, always prepared, really collaborative. And, and we were just again, we, we were phenomenally fortunate to, to to land the cast that we did. So thanks again to Kevin for coming on the show. Uh, that was just a small teaser 
uh, of the conversation you had. I mean, what was it like uh, speaking to him? Yeah, he's really good. He's one of these sorts of debut kind of filmmakers that A24 have, have kind of picked up here and there and sort of champion work. So I think one of those things, I think you watch something like Low Tide and whether you're fans of it like we are or someone that's maybe comes in and goes, oh, yeah, kind of mixed. I think you would look at that and go, that is such a strong debut from someone on such a low budget. And you'd kind of want to throw money kind of at him. I think you hear it in a sort of full interview that he's kind of working on projects with like places like Bad Robot, um, sort of J.J. Abrams kind of studio house and a lot of different things that he can't sort of dive into at the moment. And you can imagine being sort of one of these sorts of directors, like, you know, whether it's a J.J. Abrams and Edgar Wright, Ryan Johnson's, etc., that are kind of cinephiles at heart as well, watching a film like this and going... I see a potential here, whether it's in the writing or, or as a director, to kind of go on and do something really kind of fascinating, kind of next as well. So I, I'm really excited to see where his kind of career will go. Yeah, no, it's interesting because, you know, he, he's got such a assured sort of style and he's really, re, I mean, you couldn't tell that this was done by a debut director. It's really sort of well polished. The, the story is very tight, you know, it's. 86 minutes you know it it doesn't hang about it gets to the the action and you know it doesn't hang around it was really sort of tightened its structure and it doesn't sort of leave you well it's got just a a really sort of earthly quality to it and a sort of it sort of fits into that sort of like you say that sort of 80s vibe of the, the sort of gang like like the goonies and and stand by me it sort of fits in really well with something like that and at the moment you know he doesn't have anything Currently, this is on IMDb, but apparently he has written a script called First Harvest, which was on the 2019 blacklist, uh, which is the list produced every year of um, the best unproduced screenplays at that time. So hopefully, whether it's with A24 or another film studio, hopefully someone picks that one up and uh, we'll see a bit more from him in the future. Uh, but do you have any sort of final thoughts on Low Tide before it goes out and we get back to hiding <laughs> Yeah, I think we've had got a, a really good double bill this week of, you know, I always think of like this, this show can be so kind of funny sometimes where we have like an episode like Midsummer and The Farewell, like two of the most popular A24 films, like people can reel them off. And then we get things like sort of the death of Dick Long and Low Tide and I always get excited for kind of covering these films because I feel like they maybe don't get sort of the attention that some other A24 films kind of do. And I think we've we've got a really good double bill here of people I think should kind of check out you can pick these films up relatively cheap on places like kind of iTunes and, and rentals and, and, and check them out and sort of dive a bit deeper into the A24 filmography than sort of the, the films that sort of drop quite easily for all of us, I think. Exactly, and especially looking at uh, a lean summer for A24 content in terms of new films, it's the perfect time to, to dive into that back catalogue. And I know you I think you've got regular alerts on your iTunes account, which sort of brings up when films are reduced in price and i've certainly picked up i think low tide kill time uh, sort of the kill team which is coming out soon for about 99 cents uh even waves uh, which we'll be reviewing soon again is was 99 cents recently on itunes so there's always bargains to be had and you can't really go wrong uh with something like that and then you're, you're gonna find sort of hidden gems uh like this one uh but next week we're gonna be back with another interview um lee you're gonna be talking to Delano Montgomery from First Reformed. Uh, do you want to give a quick tease as to what we might expect from that? Yeah, this is one of those ones like when your character gets called a prick by Ethan Hawke in a <laughs> film, you know you've left a, a strong impression. So yeah, that's one to, to look forward to, to next week. 
absolutely and then we'll be back in two weeks time uh we're currently still on lockdown in scotland here it's looking like we're slowly starting to ease our way out of it but we're going to be back in two weeks with the perfect lockdown film the lighthouse and also the sort of almost forgotten is it an a24 film is it not it's a documentary um done with uh, apple tv the elephant queen so uh, i'm sure we'll be arguing about whether or not that one is a24 because it doesn't appear on their website uh, their official website but it does appear on wikipedia so lee i know you've got some views on this one you've put it down so you clearly count it <laughs> yeah we've kind of we're torn on this one like i think a24 slightly helped with the distribution of it in american to like a couple of cinemas like my feeling is it's not but we've probably just got to cover it anyway. And on our one side as well, it kind of nicely evens up the kind of the filmographies <laughs> as well. So I guess that's something as well. So I'm sure we'll debate that one uh, in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. And it's weird that uh, a film like The Elephant Queen almost gets more of a theatrical rollout than Under the Silver Lake. But you can look at our previous episode and we, we discuss the uh, injustice that that particular film received from A24. But while we do, we'll be back in two weeks. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.